Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I have a very, very special guest, Robert Leonard. Robert is the host of the Millennial Investing and the Real Estate Investing 101 Podcasts. He does a lot of content creation for the Investors Podcast Network with Preston Pish, Stig, and many more. And he is a breadth of knowledge when it comes to everything that comes to investing. He's also written the Everything House Hacking book. And so be sure to check that out and get a copy for yourself. We get into his background, how he got started in stock investing. Then he transitioned more into real estate and RV rentals. So we go through the transition and how he's enjoying investing in real estate and everything he's kind of seeing overall macro environment and much, much more. But as always, ladies and gents, this is not financial advice and should never be taken as financial advice. It is strictly the opinion of both Robert and myself and everything you hear about in this podcast is not, not, not financial advice. Now let's get into the show. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. But first, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Inverse. Inverse is a social and collaborative investment research platform. Many new companies like Robinhood have increased the access to financial markets. Well, Inverse is increasing the access to high-quality investment research and discussion. The entire platform is built around top-notch data and tools to help you analyze over 10,000 stocks and ETFs seamlessly. It's all embedded into the platform. And in the coming weeks, you'll be able to link your brokerage account, share your portfolio to maximize that credibility when you're writing about those various stocks and ETFs and presenting your theses, both bullish and bearish. And also, it'll allow you access to clean your portfolio with their various analytics tools. I myself have been using Inverse for quite some time now, and I absolutely love it. So come join me and follow me on Inverse at Green Candle IT and join the Green Candle Investments group there. And we can interact, post your ideas and podcasts and what have you there. And we can all have a nice discussion around the financial markets. Now, let's get into the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, and I've got a very special guest. He's the host of the Millennial Investing and the Real Estate Investing 101 Podcast. He speaks a lot about his RV rentals and is the author of the Everything Guide to House Hacking. We've got Robert Leonard, uh, who is actually one of the first voices I've listened to after uh, kind of finding Preston and Stig from the We Study Billionaires podcast. So it's it's kind of awesome to have you on the other side of the pod. So uh, with that, Robert, welcome to the show. And how are you doing today? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Brandon. I'm doing really, really well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm just excited to kind of get rolling. But um, you know, for those who are not familiar with your background, why don't you take a dive into what brought you to this point and how you got started investing? Yeah, so my background originally was in stock investing. I was kind of duped by a Facebook ad by somebody, I won't name his name, but he was a day trader and he had a really expensive day trading program. And I was a 14-year-old, 15-year-old impressionable kid, you know, freshman in high school trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And he was pitching these Facebook ads that basically promised overnight riches by 
investing in penny stocks. And as somebody who was young and impressionable and naive, I thought that that was great. And I started studying everything I could about him. And thankfully, I didn't buy the expensive coaching course that he had, but I did study his content and I realized that it was not real or really sustainable. It wasn't investing. And and what was great about that is that because I started studying it, you can't really get into any type of investing without at least hearing about Warren Buffett. And so I realized that day trading was not for me. And I learned of Warren Buffett and just kind of fell in love with his strategy. And so I ended up spending the next, I mean, still to this day, which is now almost 15 years later, uh, still studying Warren Buffett. And so I've been out to Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And so I was just a really passionate person about stock investing. And then my senior year of college, I got into real estate investing kind of by mistake, by accident. And yeah, that's led me to to kind of where I am now today. I host two pretty popular podcasts. I had like, like you said at the beginning, I have a, a book that just came out. So yeah, some, some pretty cool stuff these days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, before you got started in the podcasting stuff, you know, I, like I said, I listened to a lot of your stuff, um, you know, early on and, uh, I still do in their great shows and, uh, yeah, everything that you guys do over at the Investor Podcast Network is great. Um, so I know that you kind of started off in the banking industry, and it seems like you've always kind of had some sort of infinity for finding investments. Do you think uh, you would have kind of started down this path if it wasn't for like you kind of getting into the banking? Or do you think like, you know, I, I guess everything that uh, kind of led you to this point just kind of started all at that Facebook ad? I think it's... The Facebook ad that really started the investing part of things, that's what got me interested in in money and finance and investing. But I think that the the bank that you mentioned, that job that I had, that internship, was probably the most impactful thing on my entire life. I think it's probably had the just totally changed the trajectory of my life because I was a senior in in high school and what was really cool is the local a local credit union had a small, small branch inside our high school. And so they had this course where students could become interns at the credit union and they could work at the credit union. And there was basically only eight students a year and I was selected to be part of that. And so that was great. I was able to get like six months or 12 months of experience by being an intern there. And then because of that, I was able to apply for a job at an actual side of my high school. And I started there like the day I graduated college or high school and I was just a teller and ended up kind of working my way up and became a loan officer and a financial service rep and things like that. And so, but really, you know, I learned a lot from that experience, but really what it was, was that when you started, they put you through a week or two week training course all about finance. And it was very academic and I wouldn't say it was like the best content ever, but it was, it taught me about credit scores and credit reporting and all of that. And so basically I just turned 18 and it, I was given a very strong foundation and I didn't really make a lot of the financial mistakes because of that course that a lot of people that are in high school or early in college make just because they don't know any better. I I wasn't any better than anybody. It was just that I knew not to rack up credit card debt or, you know, things like this. So what it allowed me to do was really build a strong foundation and get started really early at, you know, just 17, 18 years old. Yeah, and that's great stuff. And honestly, yeah, I mean, I think that, that we should kind of implement something along those lines into, you know, education. And I think, you know, there's seemingly more of a demand for that. Um, but, you know, you you seem to do a lot of self-education and, uh, you know, what, I guess, you know, other than the day trading and kind of uh, getting into it and, uh, you know, seeing like maybe you could shoot up and the, you know, maybe the Wall Street bets kind of mindset now, like get rich quick. 
Um, what initially drew you to like the stock market investing and what benefits did you initially see? Um, you know, did you did the whole like compound interest kind of aspect click or was it just, uh, you know, you hear people making money from this and that's kind of where you went from it? It was really just the Warren Buffett strategy because he he has this quote and I, I never remember it word for word, but he basically says something along the lines of value investing either clicks with somebody right away or it just never does. And like it just makes sense for people or it doesn't. And for me, even though I was young, I, it just made a lot of sense. Like you want to buy things for less than they're worth and wait for them to come back in value. And so for me, you know, obviously that's an oversimplification, but that just general philosophy made a lot of sense to me. And so that was really what interested me in stock investing. I saw how wealthy, you know, all these other you know, stock investors, Buffett's just one example, but there's tons and tons of others. And I saw how wealthy they were. I always wanted to be rich. I always wanted to be wealthy. So I just figured, you know, stock investing was a great way to do it. And so I started to get interested in stock market. I thought, again, you know, nobody in my family ever went to college. Nobody had ever made any type of investment. So I didn't have anything to like lean on or anybody to any path to see like, oh, this is how I need to go to do this. And really, this was, I know I'm, I'm still pretty young, but this was still really before like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook were like really popular. Like the type of education that's available now was not available back then. So for me, I thought the way to get into that was to become a financial advisor. So that was my plan was that I was going to go to school, study finance, become a financial advisor. I thought that I had a misconception about what a financial advisor was. I thought that, that I would be picking stocks for people. I thought they'd be like, oh, here's a million dollars. I'll be investing all this money for you and trying to find, you know, be Warren Buffett for this individual person. And again, going back to the credit union that I worked at after high school was we had an in-branch financial advisor and just kind of by luck, I guess, I, I just was willing to take the initiative to go up to him and always talk to him. I was always picking his brain and he wasn't always in the office, but when he was, I was always going up to him, asking him all these questions. And so because I did that, he was, he like kind of took me under his wing a little bit and he you know, not a ton. We didn't talk that much, but a little bit that we did, he taught me a lot. And I basically realized that financial advising in a lot of cases is really just sales, uh, you know, kind of for an analogy, it's like kind of like car sales of the financial services industry. And so I realized I, I hated sales. I, I did not want to do anything sales related. So I was like, this is just not going to be the career path for me. And so I kind of put that on the back burner. I knew that financial advising was not for me. I wanted to be picking stocks, not, you know, being a financial advisor and selling things. So ended up going down that path and and ended up trying to find something else. And and so I ended up learning that I wanted to be an equity analyst. That's what what needed to be done. And so I applied to roughly, I think it was like 898 jobs or something like that, according to LinkedIn, uh, to become an equity analyst. And unfortunately I just couldn't get couldn't get a job. And I just I was trying to apply for hedge funds and things like that. I just could not get a job. And so I said, you know what? Screw this. I can do this on my own. And I ended up just studying and doing it all on my own. And the reality, I, that's what I said to myself. I said, I can't, if these guys can start a firm investing in stocks, I could do that too. And so that was kind of my plan was, all right, if nobody's going to hire me, I'm going to do it on my own. And so that was my plan for a while was to just start my own hedge fund eventually. And you know, it's kind of interesting. It's come full circle now because... I wanted to work at these hedge funds and now the hedge funds are asking to come on my podcast. I've actually had a couple who I applied to not knowing, you know, they don't know that I applied 10 years ago, but 
they know they're asking to come on the podcast as guests or even, you know, I wanted to work at JP Morgan and now I just did an interview for JP Morgan and they reached out to me because they're like, oh, we want uh, investors, you know, who are doing well and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, this is really full circle here. But anyway, I digress. It, it's yeah. So that was the path I wanted to go down. And that's how I got interested in stock investing. That's awesome. And not to date you too much, but it's, you said earlier, it was like 14 or 15 or so years ago when you kind of first started studying, which is right around 2008. And so, you know, that's obviously a crazy time to kind of start looking into it with a lot of volatility, uh, obviously huge market swings to kind of start learning. Um, but now we're kind of seeing something a little bit similar. I mean, I mean, obviously there's differences between every kind of, you know, uh, market cycle, recession, depression, whatever you want to call it, what we're in right now. Um, and I know you're a believer in the value investing principles that Warren Buffett, you know, preaches. Um, so do you kind of look at the macro environment or, you know, are you just kind of uh, still kind of looking at, you know, how stocks are valued and, and everything like that uh, based on, you know, the uh, classic value investing, you know, metrics like price to earnings and all that kind of stuff? I'm entirely bottoms up. So I take the same approach as Buffett. Buffett doesn't look at any macro or economics. At least it's what he says. It's what he writes about. That's what's been written in the books. And that's the same approach I take. And, you know, I mean, if there's something obvious in the economy, like, you know, if there's a, a Fed interest rate hike or an interest rate, you know, change that's potentially coming next week, then yeah, I might hold off a week to buy something. But for the most part, I'm not really looking at economic trends or anything like that. I'm, if I find a company that's undervalued, which I don't really pick individual stocks much anymore, but if I did, that's what I would do. And that's what I do in real estate is, you know, people are panicking in the real estate market. It's, I take the same approach as if I find a deal that's great, the numbers make sense, then I'm more than willing to buy it. Yeah. So are you kind of, uh, I guess with this massive volatility and everything that's kind of gone on the past two years, have you just been you know, I guess still like, you know, almost like DCAing in uh, or have you almost been like kind of like holding cash kind of sitting on the sidelines more so? Um, because I think you know, the general consensus when I'm when I'm hearing now or, you know, when the when the pandemic kind of first started, you know, they kind of had the motto cash is king. Um, and that was, you know, more so on the business side and everything like that. So um, I always find it interesting to see kind of how, you know, investors prepared for you know something along these lines or, you know, or, or, you know, obviously you and I are probably pretty similar in age here. So we're a little on the younger side. We got a longer time outlook. Um, so maybe DCAing wouldn't have been the worst strategy in the world. So I'm, I'm just curious to see here, you know, obviously not financial advice or anything like that, but how you kind of approach this uh, pandemic and investing in stocks. I know you're, you're kind of getting into real estate more so now, but um, are you still kind of going into it that way? Or are you uh, just kind of picking and choosing your spots? So I had a, a, a decent cash position going into COVID. I didn't know COVID was coming, obviously, but I just happened to have a decent cash position. I was kind of feeling like things were a little bit heated. And so I did have a little bit of cash. And it wasn't necessarily that I was trying to time the market. I just couldn't find anything that I felt was a good value. And so that just led to a, a bit of a cash position. And when COVID hit, I deployed about 97% of that cash uh, pretty darn close to the bottom. I don't want to say I timed the bottom perfectly, but I got some it was very close and I hadn't, I didn't look at my brokerage account for probably two years and log in, didn't do anything. It just continued to dollar cost average over those two years. And that was it. So today, very little cash position in terms of what's in my actual like investments accounts. I've kind of 
bulked up my emergency fund and some some other like cash holdings that I have. But in terms of like my investment accounts, I don't have any uh, cash really sitting in there. Maybe one two percent, maybe not. Probably not even that. It's just all pretty much invested, all dollar cost averaging from here out. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Now uh, let's move into a little bit more of the the real estate side. Um, so you know, real estate has been. Uh, I guess kind of at the forefront and it's been pretty interesting uh, now that we've, you know, kind of gone through this. I know I'm, I'm down here in Florida, so we've seen the market kind of rocket shoot up and rents skyrocket. Now housing is kind of coming down a little bit, but I'd say rent is still kind of increasing. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I think this is interesting because, you know, like you said, you uh, we're more like a stock investor at the beginning, and now you've kind of gotten into real estate and you kind of fell into that um, by accident. So why don't you go into, you know, kind of how you fell into investing in real estate and, uh, you know, kind of your status of, you know, your portfolio and what you're looking at today? Yeah. So my dad told me going into my freshman year of college that when I graduated college, I would have to start paying him rent if I still lived at home. But, you know, I'd, presumably I'd be earning a salary. So he didn't want me to live for rent free. You know, I thought that was fair. I didn't think it was really that unreasonable. I just didn't want to do it. And so when he told me that, I, you know, I was an 18 year old freshman in college. I was just starting. And he, I told him, I said, Hey, I'm going to buy a house. As soon as I graduate college, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a house and I'm going to live there so I don't have to pay you rent. And I had no intentions of being a real estate investor. And, you know, my friends and family, my dad, everybody kind of laughed because you know, they didn't own a home until they were in their 40s. And even then, it was like a really big deal. So it just didn't really seem reasonable for an 18 to, at the time I graduated college, 21 year old to, to do that. And so nobody really believed in me, but for three years, I worked nearly full time throughout college to save money, did as much as I could to get educated. I worked as a loan officer, did everything I could to kind of get my financial position and education a spot where I could do that. So what I did was I ended up buying a condo my senior year of college and I fell into the strategy that is known as house hacking because I had two bedrooms in the condo and I didn't realize or I didn't use the second bedroom. I lived there for a few months and I didn't even open the door in the second bedroom for months. So I was like, oh, I should probably do something with that. And so I ended up renting it out and my mortgage was all in with HOA and everything was like say 1100 or so. And the tenant just for the bedroom was about 700 or $750 a month. And so I was living for like 350 to $400 a month. I was like, this is awesome. And I realized after a little bit, I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm not that smart. I can be the only person that's ever done this. Like, there's no way that, that I'm the first person in the world that's ever done this. And so sure enough, I look it up and of course I found bigger pockets. I found house hacking and I realized that, you know, I had always been interested in, in investing in real estate, but I thought that I had to be super rich to do it. So going back to kind of like my stock investing in Warren Buffett days was my plan was to be a a uh, stock investor, build my wealth that way, and then put it into real estate once I was wealthy enough to do so. And so I kind of just figured it was a later in life type of thing. But this allowed me to realize when I started looking on the bigger pockets forums and everything else, I saw that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of other people doing exactly what I wanted to do. And they were no different than me. They weren't rich. They didn't have a lot of money. And I was like, okay, well, if those people can do it, then I can do it. And so from there, I've now house hacked a total of three times. I'm sitting in my current and third house hack. I've done roughly 12 to 15. I've owned 12 to 15 units. Uh, that's not what I own today, but that's what I've done total. Uh, today, you know, I've sold off some properties, not not because of trying to time the market, but just trying to change my asset type a little bit. And so, yeah, that's that's where I'm at today. 
So for those in the audience that don't know, like I know that there's like kind of two time, two kinds of house hacks, right? So there's like, you know, the one like you described where you live in and, um, you know, rent out a room or do something along those lines, or you get like a multifamily property. So, uh, you know, what kind of house hacks have you done and uh, what are the benefits and negatives to uh, both of those methods? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a ton of different methods of house hacking, but what I've done is I've done the single family rent by the room. So I've done that. I've done what's called a live in flip, which is basically you're doing a flip while you live there. And the third one is a multifamily live in one unit, rent out the others. And so benefits of the single family is that they're generally pretty profitable. And the drawback is that you're living with somebody else. You're sharing space with a live in flip. They can be relatively profitable if you get a good property, get a good deal and you do a good flip. But the drawback is that you're living in a construction zone for however long it takes to do their innovations and you're not reducing your costs at all on a monthly basis. So with most house hacking strategies, you're living for less because you have that rental income coming in with a live in flip. You're more like flipping a property and you don't get paid to sell the property. So you're not reducing your living costs on a monthly basis. And then with a multifamily property, the pros are that you get to live alone. You don't have to share space with anybody and that you still have rental income coming in to reduce your costs. And the con is that you're still living next to somebody and it's usually not as profitable as maybe a single family rent by the room strategy. So um, you're, you're not giving up as much comfortability, but you're also not profiting or, or reducing your living costs as much. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, like, like I've kind of mentioned a couple times, it's been really interesting with uh, real estate right now, especially with housing, rental. And, you know, we also saw the the COVID crash and a lot of people losing their jobs and, and other things like that. So, um, you know, when I listen to a lot of these real estate investors, their uh, common theme is kind of uh, cash flow during these recessions. So, has, uh, has, you know, your rental income or have you kind of seen some, some interesting things going on uh, during this COVID crash? Or, you know, how did you kind of prepare to pick the right tenants and kind of avoid maybe potentially, you know, losing some of that r- rental income during, uh, you know, this, this crazy volatile time? So I tend to be a bit, I- I'm pretty willing to take risks in terms of investments, but I always caveat that by having reserves. So you know, a lot of real estate investors will not leverage a lot. They'll keep a pretty low LTV. I'm willing to have quite a high LTV on my properties, basically as high as the, the bank will let me. But I caveat that by having a lot of reserves. So when COVID hit, I wasn't worried at all because I had, I think, nine or 12 months of reserves for every property that I owned. So basically, I could not, not collect rent for nine or 12, I believe it was 12 months for 12 months. And still cover the mortgage on every property that I had. So I really wasn't worried. And honestly, that was a little bit of a luck, uh, kind of a lucky thing because I had been putting money aside from the cash flow. I never, I never take money out of the real estate portfolio currently. Uh, all the money just gets put into an account and gets saved up until it's ready to buy another property. And so the, the account was reserves, but it was also kind of a, a stash for buying the next property. And so it, it worked out. And, and so for me, I also wasn't really worried because... I'm really strict with my criteria when I'm screening tenants. And so I knew I had high quality tenants. Uh, Also, thankfully, we were in some states that had less strict kind of COVID requirements. And so they weren't necessarily like given a free pass from the government to not pay rent for two years. So that helped a bit. 
you know, and also I think just kind of the general lifestyle or beliefs of where some of our properties are is that these people generally wanted to pay the rent. Like they weren't trying to look for a way out of not paying. And so if they were employed, they were paying. And so a lot of them, none of our tenants lost their jobs or anything like that. So everything and everything was fine for us. And, and but I was really happy that we had the reserves at least because then I didn't have to worry at all because I knew we were safe. We were set for essentially 12 months. Yeah, I got you. So there's a couple things that you said there that I that I want to pull out and talk about. The first is, uh, you know, you you talked about multiple states. So, you know, that obviously means you're a long term uh, or a long distance real estate investor. So why don't you uh, explain kind of how you got into that and what that experience has been like, uh, you know, investing long distances and not, you know, being able to kind of drive to your properties or kind of go in and check up on them frequently. Yeah. So I'm in, in Texas is where my, my long distance rentals are. Of course I house hack where I live. So I have some units there, which is up in new England, but uh, yeah, the long term distance rentals are in Texas. And I got into it because once I was done house hacking for the second time, I wanted to buy a traditional rental property. And in the area where I live, I was looking at roughly a hundred, $125,000 in cash required to buy something not that big. It would have been like a duplex, maybe a triplex, maybe a four unit, but probably not even that. So you're looking at a significant amount of capital needed just to buy your first deal. And so for me, I just didn't really have that money. And so, you know, I could have probably scraped it together from myself and a business partner or a couple business partners. And like, I might've been able to get it done, but it would have been a a very big stretch. And I just thought it was really risky. And so I said, well, I've read a lot about real like long distance real estate investing. There was, there was a, a book by David Green called Long Distance Real Estate Investing. So I read that and I really liked it. It made a lot of sense to me. And so that's what I did. And I started to invest long distance. I said, okay, here's a massive difference. I can get into this property for $15,000 instead of $125,000. So let's just say this goes completely sideways and I can't manage it. It's horrible. I lose the property. You know, in one case, I lose $120,000. In another case, I only lose fifteen, dollars which is more risky, right? And then the second thing is the mortgage on one property would have been like four or five, maybe $6,000 a month. And the second one would have been $500 a month. So again, which one's more risky, right? And so for me, I said, okay, $500 a month, it would suck to have to cover that myself. But if I had to, if I couldn't rent this place out and I needed to just sell it, I could cover $500 a month until I could sell it and, and cover the mortgage. So I'd be all set. Whereas if I bought a property with a $6,000 a month mortgage, I can't cover that every month if we don't have rental income coming in. So I just saw investing where I lived as massively risky, mostly just because of the size and scale. So I started with a much smaller property in Texas just to kind of get the, you know, learn what I was doing get the feel for the area, get a feel for real estate investing, having a traditional rental. And I ended up really liking long distance investing. It forced me to really think of it like a business rather than, you know, kind of like a, some mom and pop investors do. And so, yeah, I just kept doing it. And now I've built a portfolio there. I, like I said, I've so, bought some, sold some down there, but for the most part, yeah, that's my, that's my go-to strategy. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned earlier, we, um, so it, it makes me think that you have some business partners. And like I said, I've heard you on some other shows, so I know that you kind of have uh, you've done some deals with some partners. So, you know, why don't you describe like that experience and, uh, you know, kind of how you look at, um, you know, investing with a partner, because I feel like a lot of, you know, when it comes to investing, a lot of people kind of talk about that individual aspect, whether it's, you know, stock investing, kind of doing your own research, like figuring it out yourself. 
Um, so how has it been uh, investing with a partner? And uh, yeah, what are some of the benefits that you see going into a deal with, uh, with a partner? Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I was I, I was lucky to find such a great partner. It's just Ryan, my buddy Ryan and I, and we have a lot of similarities in terms of how we think about things, our work ethic, things like that. But we're very different in terms of our skill set, so we complement each other really well in that aspect. So that's been really helpful, and it, it's been great because going into that first deal, fifteen thousand dollars probably would have been like all of my savings, and so it would have been really risky. Versus I could go in with 7,500, he could go in with 7,500 and I'd still have 7,500 saved in the bank. So I would have been in a much stronger financial position, or at least I would have felt much better doing it. So it was just, you know, plain and simple. It was, it was much more helpful to get into that first deal or even to scale. Now you're only coming in with half the money yourselves if you split it 50, 50 with somebody, which is what we've done. And so what's, what's been great is I run all of like the analytical financial analysis side of the business. He handles all of the kind of customer tenant person facing stuff he's a he's in sales by trade so anytime we do property we do in-house property management so he does all of the the property management for the most part and he talks to our real estate agents things like that when we're trying to buy or sell properties and i do all of the analysis so yeah it's been great so what was it like i mean did you get like a little uh i guess a little nerves uh, or like a little fear of getting into a deal with a partner or, you know, did you just kind of have that relationship with uh, your business partner, Ryan, like going back before? So you kind of, uh, I guess, were a little bit more comfortable going into, uh, you know, such a big deal and, you know, expense. Cause even though, you know, $7,500 on, uh, on paper, when it comes to real estate, doesn't seem that much, but you know, $7,500 is, is a good amount of money to kind of go into a deal with somebody. So, um, you know, did, did that prior relationship with him kind of help you, uh, I guess, get the confidence to go in? Or did you guys have any sort of, I guess, legal framework, like contracts or something like that, that you signed to kind of give you, uh, I guess, a little bit more uh, sense of peace going into the deal? No, we didn't really even have a relationship going into this. So basically what happened was I knew his brother. We had his. I was big into bodybuilding in, in college. And so his brother and I were always working out together. And so just kind of through the grapevine, Ryan heard that I was a stock investor because at the time I hadn't been in real estate, but I was a stock investor. And so he's like, Hey, can we, can we get lunch someday? And so he took me to lunch and he's like, Hey, I have multiple thousands of dollars, not crazy amount, but just some money that I want invested. Will you invest it for me? And I said, no, I'm not going to invest your money for you because I don't, if I had X dollars to invest right now in the market, I wouldn't deploy it right now. Personally, I would wait a little bit. And so I just, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't, I didn't want to invest his money. I wasn't, I wasn't okay with that. So I told him that and I was with him and he was appreciative of it and not just, you know, taking his money. And so we just kind of continued to build a little bit of a relationship from there. We both independently were studying real estate and were interested in real estate. One day we just kind of mentioned what we were doing and we didn't have much of a relationship at the point, but we were kind of building it. And then we were both interested in real estate. So he said, well, why don't we just do it together? You know, I was going to ask you to invest my real estate, my, my stock investing money. So why don't, why don't I just, you know, why don't we just do real estate together? And so that's kind of where we were at. And we just really had full trust and transparency with each other from the get-go. And I think the reason, you know, that's not always the best way to go into it. But for me, we were comfortable with that because 
we knew, like I knew how he thought about things. I knew books he's read. I knew podcasts he's listened to. And it was the same for me. So I knew we thought about things very similarly. I know we had a lot of the same. I knew his brother for a while. So I knew we had like a lot of the same mindset and, and just we thought about things a lot the same way. So I, I was just comfortable with it. And no, we didn't really have much legal framework. We just kind of spit shake, you know, spit in our hands and shook. And and that was pretty much it. There really wasn't much to it. And uh, yeah, we're four, three or four or five years into it, into it now. And it's been great. Yeah. And you uh, mentioned that you're, you're investing in Texas and it was, you know, a smaller deal. So I imagine you're not investing in these giant uh, cities there in Texas that are kind of, you know, blowing up maybe like in Austin, Houston, Dallas, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, there's always that two, two kinds of aspects of real estate investing that they kind of preach, right? It's either the cash flow or the appreciation. Um, and we've kind of seen an interesting, uh, I guess, time of appreciation where, you know, interest rates were super low. So houses all over the country have kind of shot up in appreciation and everything like that. Do you kind of look at that and try to analyze that when you're looking at deals? Or are you kind of, you know, strictly looking at the cash flow and the appreciation is uh, somewhat of a bonus? Yeah, I'm more interested in the cash flow. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily invest somewhere where it's cash flow only and there's like zero chance for appreciation. But I'm also not going to invest somewhere where there's only appreciation and no cash flow. So for me, I'm really looking at something that is mainly cash flow, but also has some chance of appreciation. So Midwest, mostly cash flow, not a lot of appreciation, but there are certain areas in the Midwest that are a little bit more, have a little bit higher likely chance of uh, appreciation. So for me, like Texas, right? So that's why I kind of ended up in Texas. Great cash flow, but there is a chance of, of appreciation versus like somewhere in, say, Ohio you know, there's some major cities in Ohio that a lot of people invest, probably not going to get a lot of appreciation there. And you might on a percentage basis, but it the properties are 50, 60, 70, $100,000. So there's not going to be a lot of appreciation in terms of net dollars anyway. So yeah, I, I'm mostly looking for cash flow, but I do definitely consider what component appreciation could play in the, in the, in the property's long-term holding period. Gotcha. So then how did you, you know, determine Texas and the city that you're investing in? Um, you know, what kind of data were you looking at? Um, because obviously, you know, long distance, you know, you could essentially invest in any single place in the country. So what kind of things were you looking at? And, uh, you know, how did you wind up picking Texas? Yeah. So I found this gentleman named Neil Bauer. He came on my podcast and he was explaining to me his these six demographic data points that he looks at for analyzing a market to determine if it's good. He was a data scientist that turned real estate investor. So he was leveraging his data science background to find the best markets using data. And it really spoke to me. My background's in accounting, finance. So just all this numbers kind of talk really spoke to me. And so I hired a programmer to scrape demographic data for 7,000 cities, for every city across the US, basically, that had a population of over, I think, 6,000. So I ended up to be roughly 7,000 cities. And I had these six demographic data points for all 7,000 cities. And I put them into an Excel spreadsheet and I analyzed them and I ranked them based on their demographic data points, one to 7,000. And so I just looked at the top 25 and I said, okay, which of these have property types, assets that I'm interested in? So if they only have apartment buildings and I'm looking for single family, that's not the right fit. Or if I'm only looking for single family and they only have multifamily, that's not the right fit either. So like made sure it had the right 
asset type that I wanted to buy. Also made sure that it was within my price range. And then also I wanted to make sure that there were enough real estate professionals to help me there if I needed, because they were going to be, you know, I needed to build a team. And so that was going to be really important. And so that narrowed it down to 10 or 15 or so out of the 25. And so I just started making offers. I was pretty much indifferent. They were all amazing cities with fit all of my criteria. And so I started making offers across all of these different cities. I think there was, I had 10 or 11, maybe 12 offers out at one time. And this was ranging from Idaho to Texas, to Florida, to Ohio, to North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, Alabama, like it was all over. And I basically said, whichever one I get a deal in first is where I'll continue to build my portfolio. And it just happens a deal hit in the small town in Texas. And that's, it worked really well. And so I just continued to invest there. I gotcha. And uh, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it seems like it's been working out pretty well for you. And uh, the data driven approach has been uh, pretty good. And yeah, if you guys haven't heard those episodes with Neil Bauer, I believe you had him on twice. Is that right? At least twice, maybe three times. And he's coming on next week again, depending on when, you know, I don't know when this comes out, but yeah, it, uh, he's coming on again soon. So we'll have another conversation to get an update. Yeah, so he's he's great, and I uh, you know I, I got to uh, subscribe to his new newsletter and look at all the data points that he puts out as well. So it's uh, if you're looking to get into real estate investing on like more of a data driven approach, he's he's awesome and one of the best out there. So I definitely recommend listening to those episodes and uh, going through all that stuff as well. Um, but lastly, let, let's move on to to kind of like the newer uh, I guess asset class. I don't even know how to describe it that you're getting into, but it's the RV rentals. So uh, how did you even decide to, to start renting an RV and uh, kind of going through and, and just that, that whole process? What has it all been like? Yeah. So how I got into it was that uh, I race motocross and in the motocross world, it's very common for people to have an RV to go to the races. Typically, a normal event is a two-day kind of event, Saturday, Sunday, and you'll go on Friday and stay Saturday and Sunday. And so, you know, you, some people will tent, but for the most part, and, and hotels typically aren't really much of an option because it's in pretty remote areas. So most people will just have an RV. And so when I got into racing, I want, got back into racing, I wanted an RV and they're pretty expensive, especially for like a, a decently nice one. And so I just was kind of like, all right, how can I afford this? And so I ended up thinking, okay, well, I wonder if there's a way that I can house hack an RV and, you know, I only need the RV on the weekends when I want to go racing. And then, you know, maybe I can rent it out the rest of the time to cover the cost. And so I tried to find somebody on the, to come on the podcast to talk about this, if anybody had been doing it. And I ended up finding a gentleman who's doing RV rentals out in California. And he, he told me everything about what he's doing. He wasn't house hacking an RV. He just was renting them out as, as a business. And I really liked what he had told me. And so I said, okay. I'm going to buy one and I'll rent it out when I'm not using it. And then I'll use it when I want to. And so that was kind of the game plan. And then kind of the RV rentals took a, took on a life of their own. It did significantly better than I expected. It was a lot more profitable than I expected. And so, yeah, it's just been this fun little, you know, it's nothing crazy, but a fun little business that I've been, been doing on the side here. So how have you gone about storing them and uh, kind of going through all that? Like, what has that process been like? Uh, you know, are you seeing a pretty high demand um, right now? I mean, are a lot of people kind of going on these long RV trips? Uh, yeah, I mean, I asked like three or four questions there, so I'll let you kind of get into it and rip it. 
Yeah, so it's stored just in my driveway. I have a decent size. I'm house hacking and I have a big driveway. So people are, you know, you can find different types of properties to fit what you need if you're house hacking. But yeah, so I just, I only have one right now. I'm, I'm considering buying more, but I just got to decide. I'm working on a lot of different businesses. I need to decide if this is the business I kind of want to scale. And so if it is, I'll buy more. But for now, I just have one. And so it's in my driveway with all my other vehicles. And when somebody wants it, they just come and pick it up. They take it, go either to a campground or go on a road trip, and then they bring it back and drop it off. And yeah, there's a ton of demand. It's been pretty much rented almost every single day from May till now. And people in New England, where I live, you can't use it in the winter because the pipes freeze. So pretty much just May to like end of September is pretty much the only time you can rent it. And it's been booked almost every single day. And it could have been booked more, but I have kind of strict criteria. Like I don't allow two or three night trips. I require like five, six, seven night trips. And so if I wanted it to, it could have been booked even more than it was. And somebody literally just booked it last week for two weeks starting next week. So yeah, there's, there's tons of demand. And then, uh, yeah, so I like, how are you going about this? Is there, I know like on Airbnb, you can kind of do that. Are you using Airbnb or is there like another kind of, uh, I guess, website that is kind of like the uh, Airbnb for RV rentals? So I primarily, yeah, there's an, uh, two websites. Well, there's many websites, but two primary websites that are just like Airbnb, but for RV rentals. One's called RV Share and one's called Outdoorsy. Those are the main platforms that I use for the RV rental. You can list the RV on Airbnb and I did do that. But when you list it on Airbnb, it has to be a stationary unit. So they can't get in it and drive. So I did list it on Airbnb. They would just have to come stay in my driveway, basically, and stay in the RV. And it would basically be like a, a single unit. I mean, the RV is very, very nice. So it's not like it, you know, they they basically have like a one bedroom unit that they could stay in. And I got a lot of people that were interested in it from Airbnb, but everybody just wanted to drive it. And so I ended up shutting down the Airbnb listing because they can't drive it from Airbnb because it doesn't have insurance. They don't provide insurance when it's driven. Whereas the other platforms it's made to take it and drive it. So it comes with insurance. And so I ended up just shutting down the Airbnb one because I didn't get anybody to book it that actually wanted to just kind of stay in the driveway. And so shut that down, just focus on Airbnb uh, on RV share and outdoorsy. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you have a lot of stuff going on, right? So you have the RV rentals, you have, you know, your long distance rentals, you have your house hacks and you have your stock portfolio, you know, your podcast and everything like that. Like, how have you kind of managed all this and like, you know, kind of becoming the full-time entrepreneur that you are, um, you know, what kind of strategies have you used to help manage your time and kind of keep things organized? It's just really, I just, basically live and die by to-do lists. Um, I know a lot of people don't really like them, but for me, they work really well. I don't, you know, all of the cons that come with a to-do list don't really impact me. I use them really effectively. I just keep track of everything I do. I'm really organized, really plan out my days. I work a lot. I, you know, I wake up early, I go to bed late, you know, kind of things. And, uh, you know, I just make a lot of sacrifices to make sure I get everything done that needs to be done. Now, where do you see yourself? Like, what are your goals for the next five years? Do you have anything that you're projecting out? Like maybe a certain amount in the stock portfolio, a certain amount of deals. Like, where do you kind of want to see yourself to be in the next five or so years? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I just got back from FinCon for anybody who's listening that knows what FinCon is. And a couple people there asked me the same question, like, what is my five-year plan? And the honest answer is I don't know. 
Um, I really don't know exactly what the next five years are going to look like. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And then uh, lastly, let's wrap it up. You uh, just recently wrote a book so uh, called The Everything Guide to House Hacking. Um, so tell us the motivation behind writing that and, uh, you know, kind of the response that's been since you've been published or since you published it. Yeah, so I, I kind of always wanted to write a book. I'd even started writing one over the last four years or so and just kind of put chapters together when I had ideas. And I always wanted to eventually publish a book. I didn't really, it wasn't really like top of mind. I wasn't in a rush. I wasn't really like super excited to do it anytime soon, but it was definitely something I wanted to do eventually. And just one day I got an email from Simon Schuster and they were like, Hey, uh, we're looking for somebody to write a book on house hacking. Um, I think you'd be a great fit, you know, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And they offered me a book deal. And so I took the book deal with Simon and Schuster. I said, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. This is a great opportunity to do so. And so that was, that was the motivation was that I was pitched a book deal uh, with one of the largest publishers in the world. So I couldn't really pass that up. And so I did that and the response has been great. Um, there's been a lot of people that have seemed to really enjoy the book and, you know, I enjoyed writing it. I enjoy reading it. I enjoy having it out there. I enjoy being able to give the book away for free to people, um, when I can and, and just really trying to help as many people improve their financial position through house hacking as I can. Yeah. House hacking is an awesome way to get started. And, uh, yeah, I'm actually sitting in my house hack right now. I got a little duplex here in the Tampa area, so it's been great. Um, and you know, you were one of the motivations behind that, uh, through the real estate investing podcast. So, uh, thanks, thanks to you. I, you know, I think my, my position has changed a little bit as well. Um, but I like to ask this one last question to kind of wrap it up because we are in kind of like a volatile and, you know, maybe a little bit of a scary time with like a recession and a lot of different macro factors. So what's one piece of advice uh, or maybe one thing that you would say to somebody who's kind of sitting on the sidelines right now and uh, maybe a little nervous to get started investing? Like, what would you tell that person to kind of give them that little push to get started? Focus on what you can focus on what you can control. Don't focus. Don't worry about all the macro noise, trends, economic, you know, all these news headlines, turn off the TV, turn off Jim Cramer, turn off CNBC, turn off whatever news source you have. Make sure you're only buying good deals. Make sure the numbers make sense and only can focus on what you can control and that you'll be in a good spot. Robert, thanks so much for your time. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what you all, what you got going on? Yeah. Everythinghousehacking.com is the website. You can also go to theinvestorspodcast.com. That's where you'll be able to find all of the podcasts. You can find the book everywhere. You can buy books, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere like that. It's called the Everything Guide to House Hacking. You can connect with me on social media at the Robert Leonard. Thanks, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Yep. It was great. I think everybody's going to get a lot out of this episode. So thanks so much.